Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder, founder, investor. I mean, managing now 8 billion, you know, his firm. I think that we're really going to enjoy this one and really find it inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Drew Otting. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much for having me. So originally grew up there in Iowa. So uh, give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was, how was life growing up? Yeah, I grew up in Iowa City, Iowa. Um, which is a small town, small college town where the University of Iowa is based. My parents uh, were, you know, grown up in the South, but they moved there um, to the university. It was, it was honestly a great place to grow up. Um, it's, uh, it's maybe not the most exciting place, um, you know, w when you get a little older, but um, it was a place that's sort of maybe like classic Americana growing up. Um, very good public schools and safe place to grow up. And, uh, and I, my parents still live there and my grandparents still there. I love it. I go back a fair amount. So how, how did the obsession around golf and investing, how did that come about? It's quite the combo. Yeah. You know, so I've tried to trace back why, because there's two things that have been pretty formative in my life. And maybe that's a uh, priest <laughs> golf and investing is like maybe a very stereotypical combo, but, um, my parents didn't play golf. My parents didn't know anything about investing. I had a friend whose father was a, was I thought was really cool, and he golfed a lot, and so I started golfing, and um, and I think golf was interesting to me because it, you get treated like an adult very quickly as a kid if you're good at golf because most of the people you're playing with are, uh, you know, are, are adults or older, um, and so a lot of the first conversations I remember having about business, about life, you know, hearing about people's, you know, divorces and and, and sort of adult conversations came when I was, you know. 13, 14, 15, and, and playing a lot of golf. Um, so I think, I think it, it formed me that way. And then investing, I, I just a bunch of really good teachers that sort of were talking about the financial crisis right before it was kind of happening and talking about things. And it got me thinking about financial markets. And I started reading everything I could. I mean, there's not a lot of investing in Iowa um, professionally. Um, there's some, though. Um, and so I read this book, Barbarians at the Gate. And Barbarians at the Gate is a story of um, basically the LBO boom and really um, Henry Kravitz and George Roberts, sort of KKR buying RJ Nabisco. And they had gone to the school, Claremont. Uh, they played golf there actually. Um, and then my mom, I told my mom about this and my mom got a recruiting letter or I got one, but my mom opened it um, from Claremont McKenna. And she said, this is that school you're talking about. And you know, where the, those investor people went and they want you to play golf. So um, really the combination of those two things are what, um, really propelled me to go to Claremont McKenna, where I studied math and finance, and I was lucky to have a scholarship there um, through the Bill Gates Investment uh, Group. Um, and so that the the two things really did influence a lot of, of where my uh, of where kind of I ended up today. And what would you say that uh, you've taken from the game of golf that you've applied, you know, to the professional side of things? <laughs> um, well, I've kind of had two relationships with golf. So as a kid, golf to me was everything. It was an obsession. It was a very competitive sport. Um, you know, I, I, you know, of course, as a kid, you always think you're a professional athlete. By the time I went to college, I realized that probably wasn't going to be the case. But, you know, I hated playing badly. I hated making mistakes. Um, and so, 
you know, I think it taught me a lot of, you know, drive and competitiveness. It's an individual sport. There's no one else to blame, which is really true with investing, I think, as well. And, and you know, maybe to some extent, entrepreneurship, you need to have, you need to at least believe that you're responsible and that, you know, you, you can determine your future. Um, and then I had the second, and so then after college, I kind of gave it up. We were building our business. We were, you know, co-founding companies and investing companies and stuff. And I didn't play golf for five years. Um, but eventually I kind of found my, way, found my way back to it. And I have a totally different relationship with it now where I'm just unbelievably appreciative of it. <laughs> uh, it's like, it's, it's an incredible way to spend time with people. And, um, and it's also, I just feel so lucky that I get to do it and play all these courses now that as a kid, I only dreamed of. So I've kind of had really two different relationships with it and both were, you know, both have been important, but today I'm, I'm certainly not, uh, I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not breaking putters or anything over my knee like I used to as a kid. And how, how does John Lonsdale, you know, come into the picture? I mean, for the people that are listening, John it was one of the founders of Palantir Technologies, which right now is valued at 17 billion. And he's also done a bunch of other incredible stuff. So, so how does he come into the picture in your life? Yeah. So, so Joe and I've worked together since, um, really since I was right out of college and we were introduced uh, by a friend of mine from Claremont McKenna. So, you know, after I left Iowa, I went to, went to Claremont. Claremont McKenna is a very small school. It's only about you know, 1,200 folks um, outside of Los Angeles. It's an incredible place. And I would say 90 plus percent of the, you know, uh, of the relationships I've built in business and, and really, and personally, you know, kind of originated from there. Um, and so a friend of mine, a guy named Clint Paulus, made the introduction he had been work he had left claremont early and gone to work at adapar uh which was a company that joe started after he started palantir and joe was looking for a chief of staff and um clint thought i'd be a good fit for it so i really owe i really owe it to clint for that introduction and so yeah so joe had, you know he was one of the early kind of interns at paypal and then he had in his very in his early 20s started palantir and then he had, he had left and started a company called adapar which was a software company for wealth management um, and, uh, he's been uh, obviously a huge driving force and in my life. And also we've, you know, worked together for the last 11 years. That's amazing. Now let's talk about formation eight, you know, which is the, um, you know, when you started getting your feet wet, you know, with the whole, you know, venture world and, and, and venture investing, how was that, you know, you, you also got to experience how to raise a fund from scratch. You also got to, to have the insight to that. And, and it was not uh, in the traditional way. It was quite unique. So how did you guys go about doing that? Yeah, so it was, it was pretty funny. So when I started first working for Joe, he was still the CEO of Adapar. He, was, he told me he, wanted to, that he, were, he was building a venture fund, Formation 8, with a couple other uh, partners. And he, I remember when I first met him, he said, well, you know, venture capitalists are pretty lazy, so I'm going to do both. I'm just going to be a CEO, and I'm gonna, you know, maybe I'll hire a president at Adapar, and then you know, and then we'll have the, the venture fund, but I see every deal already, you know, prolific angel investor before being a venture capitalist. And so, you know, we'll just kind of figure it out. And then like a few weeks later, he kind of came to me. He's like, uh, I think I'm going to have to replace myself as CEO of Adapar because, you know, I don't want to raise a small venture fund. I want to raise the biggest first time venture fund since the, uh, since the crash. And I don't think we're just going to be able to do it, you know, while I'm also the CEO of a company. And, um, and I never will forget that conversation because it was, it was this really interesting moment. And what ensued after was that Joe basically approached fundraising as a, 
again, in a deterministic and very entrepreneurial way. So most venture funds raise from endowments, fund of funds, banks, sovereign wealth funds, et cetera. And uh, we, we now work with a lot of those groups. We're, we're fortunate enough now to. But when you're first starting out, very few of those groups want to take a shot on you. Um, and Joe's track record as an entrepreneur had been incredible and an angel investor, but he had never been a VC. Uh, 28, 29 at the time. And so basically we raised from whoever would invest. And he went to a lot of the angel investors in Palantir and Anapar and other people. And, and seven days a week, we would take meetings and we did meetings for a year. And I watched him just not even, it wasn't even really a grind because he enjoyed it. I mean, it was just like, it was like being at a, when you're early to startup and you're trying to sell product and you're going all over trying to sell. Um, and it was, it was, so we ended up raising $448 million for that fund, which is a great first time fund. Um, but we had 282 limited partners in that fund. So if you do the average and, and, and there was about 50 million from, from one, one group. So if you do the math, you know, it was, it was very small checks. It was people making, basically making angel investments in, in our fund. Um, and so every time I talk to people who are, you know, fundraising for venture funds or even, you know, startups raising money. Um, and they talk about minimum check sizes or they talk about, you know, only working with institutions or whatever. I'm always just like, well, I mean, I, I hope that you, you have that luxury, but you may actually also learn a lot more if you raise, you know, if you kind of go and, and do the hand-to-hand -hand combat. And I will say like some of those investors who put in maybe a million dollars in that first fund, some of them invest $50 million with us now in every fund. And some of them still only invest $1 million. And it's, it's, there's some of the strongest relationships that we have, both in life and professionally, started by those people who bet on you early. Um, and so it was, it was definitely a unique, uh, a unique way to get into the venture business, but um, I'm very grateful for it. And obviously that's a lot of people. I mean, I guess, uh, what did you learn about activating relationships or activating your network? Because that's a hell of a lot of uh, you know, people investing. Yes. So I would say that Joe is, a, like many people who worked at PayPal uh, and from that kind of crew, a very first principles thinker. And um, so one of the first principles of venture that he, had, you know, that's sort of obvious is that the relationships are where the deal flow comes from, right? Um, and so you want to both put yourself into the right networks, uh, but you also want to treat that, that network as an asset. And so very early on, my, one, of my, you know, one of my jobs was basically to manage the process, the lists, the data sets around our network. And it was critical during that fundraising period of time. And I think most people grasp that because they say, well, listen, I need to raise money. There's this objective. I have to figure out how to get to the money. You know, I think people understand that. Um, but it's not just critical for fundraising. It's actually even more critical when you become, when you've become an investor and you're a venture capitalist and you need, to, you need to source investments, you need to help your companies raise money, you need to help your companies get customers. Um, and so really from day one, we talked constantly about network management. And Joe, had, I, think, um, I think Peter Thiel had, had, had given this advice, but I can't, but it was, it was the concept when JP Morgan was being built, um, there was this idea that the senior bankers, you know, back in the day, there was no internet. Everything was the information, right, flowed through networks. And so the senior bankers were expected to host 
dinners, you know, events at their homes, basically every night of the week, um, because that was how the information flowed. And we kind of took that approach uh, where, you know, up until the pandemic, we were doing, you know, over 150 events uh, every year. Uh, and some of those would be small 10, 15 person dinners. Some would be 400 person, you know, barbecues. Um, but it was approached very much like a process, a workflow, a lot of resources, a lot of senior people's time thinking about it. It's not something we outsource. Um, and then underneath that uh, was also the systems to manage it because there's a lot of data, tons of it's obviously coming through email, calendaring. Um, you want to see the result of it. Like did the time that I spent with these individuals actually lead to, to, to business outcomes? Um, and so both on fundraising, but also, um, you know, kind of holistically at our business, we've been pretty obsessed with network management um, kind of from, from the beginning. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So, Again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, in this case, with, um, with Formation 8, not only you guys were investing, but then also helping companies in getting started. In fact, you know, one of them, Affinity, you know, incredible success. They've raised over 120 million and also Resilience, who has raised over 2.5 billion. I mean, where you are officially, you know, co-founder on both. So I guess, you know, there's, there's like really interesting stuff that I'm sure that you've learned. I think in a nutshell, you know, like, just for the people that are listening, what are those two companies doing? And then also, what is the biggest lesson that you've learned, you know, from, from these two companies? Yeah. Um, so Affinity grew out of the process, which I just outlined, which was basically I was, you know, this was I started when I was just chief staff along with Joe and, and then the current uh, co-CEOs who were basically the two smartest engineers at Stanford uh, at the time. So I used part of what I used to do as it relates to their marriage. I used to just kind of hang around after Joe would give talks at various engineering schools. And then I would just meet everyone and just kind of see what they were doing. And so, you know, I was just chief of staff. I was managing this process of network management poorly, manually through Excel and hacked together CRMs and stuff. And I said, there's gotta be a better solution for this. And then Joe 
was like, well, I want it done like 10x better than it is now. I was like, well, there's no way we're going to be able to do this. You know, maybe I was just very, maybe I was lazy, but I was like, there's no way we're going to be able to do this without software. This has to be software to integrate, um, you know, to the actual sources of data. Um, and so, you know, Ray and uh, Shuby, the, uh, you know, the, the CEOs and, and co-founders of Affinity, um, you know, I can't kind of convince them to work with us over the summer, um, along with uh, Pejman and Mar from uh, AirVC. And we kind of scoped out the initial MVP, and then they ended up you know, deciding to, to leave to work on it full time. So Affinity, you know, was a need that we knew intimately. Um, it, was a, it was a problem that I was experiencing every day. It was an existential business sort of workflow for us. And we were a great testing ground for it. The other thing is we had the first 200 to 300 customers ready to go because we knew other venture funds. We knew other private equity funds. Um, and so that was one where we started a company, you know, based off a of sort of a need that we were intimately involved with um, as, a, as a fund. And we've started four companies, other software companies that way. And then Resilience uh, is not a company we could have started in, in 2013, 14. Uh, Re Resilience, we started um, basically in April of 2020. Um, so right as the pandemic was kind of fully, you know, kind of, I think being fully appreciated for the, for the downstream effects it was going to have. And that was a company that we, we also couldn't have started alone. So we started that company with Bob Nelson at Arch, um, who's you know, obviously one of the, the sort of the history's best biotech investors and, and really just had, had been a mentor for us as we moved more and more into healthcare. Um, so we're very fortunate to have, you know, to, to be friends and have a relationship with him. And we started talking about the intersection of national defense and biotech. Um, I had been spending time kind of in the, in the first few months of the pandemic, initially on the nonprofit side, and then, and then working sort of uh, more with governments on helping source PPE. So we were, you know, it started because my mom basically didn't have any PPE. Um, you know, she was working in the COVID wars at the University of Iowa. I was like, this is crazy. You know, was talking to friends about it. A friend of ours, Robin Chan, who had really good relationships uh, in China, found some stuff, brought it over, bought it, gave it to the University, donated to the University of Iowa, and it ended up starting this thing called Operation Mass, which is a which was a, a sort of a nonprofit that really helped just deal with the sourcing and then procurement of PPE because it had totally changed. So, and then the PPE problem as quickly as it went up, it did then like all of a sudden there was like infinite PPE and it was amazing how quickly that kind of got solved. But we were talking about supply chains and means of production um, and as it related to, to national security. Bob has a big interest in national security. He's a, he's a real patriot and, um, and obviously he's an expert in biotech. And we were talking about the common problems that our biotech companies were having with manufacturing, which actually predated the pandemic incredibly expensive to manufacture, selling gene therapies, um, RNA medicines, sort of advanced biologics. Um, and there's large delays, there's sometimes quality issues. And really the most, you know, um, the most successful company, most forward thinking company, most technologically advanced company, Wuxi, you know, was largely based in China. And so, um, you know, there was, there's obviously some, some significant issues thinking through how our companies were going to work with um, a manufacturer that was that was based in China, um, both for supply chain reasons and for national security reasons. And so we said, well, let's build the AWS of 
biomanufacturing here in the United States. Uh, all the innovation is here, or a lot of it's here. Um, and why should manufacturing not be also an expertise that we have? Why should we, why should we you know, take something that is really one of the biggest cost centers and a very high margin part of the ecosystem and just sort of give up on it? And so at that point in time, we were very lucky because it probably taught me the benefit of timing. Um, it's tough to do as an entrepreneur. Like you want to start a company, you should start it, right? But if you, if you, if sometimes if you start one at the right time, it can just make a lot of things easier. And with that, because the pandemic was on everyone's mind, because these problems were very salient, we were able to recruit some of the best people right off the bat in the industry, build the best board that I've ever been lucky enough to serve on. I'm easily the least impressive person on that board. Um, and then also, we capitalized it along with Arch and a few others um, so we could hire the team. But then we immediately went and raised $750 million. Um, and that enabled us to actually go and purchase already operational facilities, which enabled us to get into the game immediately or you know, almost immediately and capture a lot of that tailwind that was coming. It also allowed us then to have financial you know, wherewithal to actually go and raise additional money and con continue to repeat that process. It also co kind of sort of you know, crossed hairs with, with like sort of one of the lowest interest rate environments we've ever had. So it was, it was easier to raise money. I, don't, I think that would be a tougher strategy to do now, but it taught me um, one, the power of focusing tons of really talented, really senior, really expert people at the right time where there's this big tailwind and how you can quickly move like magnitudes faster if you have that. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure whether you can force that into existence all the time as an entrepreneur, but it's something to definitely watch for as you're going through your entrepreneur journey. Do I have those tailwinds or are they upcoming? So, so eventually Formation 8 transitions to 8BC. And that's the, the firm that you guys are running today. Why did that transition happen? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty interesting story. I assume that these types of things happen all the time, but it's, it's not as common. So basically, we did two funds with some former business partners of ours at Formation A. Um, there was really three general partners there. I was obviously the chief of staff. I was just a, a, you know, a kid. Um, and really, we operated... We just had basically different operational cultures and also a very different focus. So the original thesis of Formation A was actually that we were going to help invest in companies here in the United States, you know, the kind of companies that Joe, you know, knew really well. And we're going to help them go to market in Asia. Um, and it was a great idea. Uh, and in certain instances, it worked. Um, but on a lot of the enterprise stuff, the companies were not mature enough to really do business internationally, um, especially in markets as complicated um, as, you know, South Korea, um, you know, and as competitive as China. And so a lot of, um, you know, a lot of that original strategy turned to actually, you know, the, the teams that were on the ground there, very talented senior people, they started looking at doing deals. So we ended up in a world where we had early stage U.S., almost all enterprise and healthcare focused investing, coupled with what became later stage um, you know, deals in, in South Korea, in you know, Singapore, China, um, et cetera. And so there was this strategy drift occurring. And then just culturally, we had this obsessive, very like startup 
probably very chaotic and, uh, and uh, you know, throwing 150 events a year and running around kind of way of operating, which just was different than, you know, our other business partners. And so, you know, we couldn't have started gotten in business without them. They were instrumental to that and brought a ton to the table that, that we didn't have. But it just was clear that, you know, we probably, if we all sat down and realized we weren't going to work together forever. And we wanted to be somewhere where we were doing that. So, you know, I think most venture firms would have just raised another fund, raised another fund and kicked the can down the road. And then eventually there's some big blow up, right? But I always had so much respect for the fact that, um, you know, Joe and, and Brian and Jim actually went through the pain of, of separating things out. And in retrospect, it looks easy. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. We're like, yeah, you know, you just do it. You just do it. But we were a fund that was two years old or three years old. And we had just, we had just spent, you know, a year and a half, like I mentioned, raising money, like, you know, nickels and dimes, you know, at the street corner to then finally have some success on those investments quickly and then get all the institutions in to our next fund and then decide, hey, actually, we're not doing another one. Right. That, it's actually very rare that that's happened. And I, I have so much respect that, um, you know, because I wasn't the leader there, but that the leaders that were there, you know, had the foresight to do that and the pain to do it. And I also feel very fortunate that that our limited partners, our investors, you know, 90 percent of them stuck by us as we made those transitions. And um, and it was easily, I think, the most formative thing that's happened because when we were able to do that, we were able to now completely operate the way that we wanted. We weren't a company inside of a company. We were just a company. We were able to hire people, compensate people, and, you know, performance manage in the way that we wanted. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, Jim and Brian and the other folks who left were able to go do that too, which is great. Um, so it was a, it was a big, it was a, a really a instrumental part of my life seeing that happen. No kidding. Now, you know, obviously today, ABC, incredible success. You guys have $7 billion that, uh, that you're managing. I guess for, for the people that are listening to get a, a better understanding, what are the kinds of companies that you guys are investing in? What gets you guys excited? Yeah, well, so we've, uh, we started with enterprise software, right? The, the, the original thesis of what we were investing in back in 2012 was really following from what Joe had been focused on, and he was one of the earliest people to, which was we called the smart enterprise. The idea was, that the same types of platform businesses that were built in the consumer world were going to permeate the enterprise world or people's work lives. And you're going to be able to build. And, and that really takes the form of workflow software. You capture the workflow and then you have the potential. And because you have the users, you control the data structure uh, to build a real platform. Um, that seems pretty obvious now. I think most people get that. But that was the first wave that we really were investing in. A lot of vertical software companies that we hoped one day would build sort of a, an operating system, be the system of record within an industry. And we were pretty comfortable with verticals because, you know, Palantir had spent most, you know, a lot of time in government when no one would touch that. And then they went to finance and then they, you know, they kind of moved vertical by vertical. Adapart had been very successful in wealth management. Uh, OpenGov, another company that Joe started in, in, in municipal government software. Um, and then we started seeing a lot of the best technical people leaving enterprise software companies and consumer internet companies. So, you know, people were leaving the Palantirs and Facebooks and Salesforces and Googles of the world to go to what looked to us like biotech companies. And we were confused 
um, and didn't fully understand it. But we kind of had a rule that, at, that one of the great things about being early stage and doing a lot of seed investing is that you get to put bets behind stuff you don't totally understand when you understand the people and the quality of the people. So we started making like sprinkling little seed bets in these people that were coming and pitching us who had previously worked at Twitter, right? People like Alon Gill, um, or they had previously worked at Facebook, or they had previously worked at, you know, Palantir. So we, we started kind of seeing this talent migration towards biotech. And we were also lucky because we had an intern at the time who was out of the bioinformatics program at Stanford. Uh, his name's Francisco Jimenez. And he's now a partner and runs our biotech program. So you kind of see where the story goes. But he, uh, he basically came to us at one point. He'd been working on enterprise software companies, you know, consumer companies, because he was an incredible computer science and data scientist, right? That's the reason he was working with us. And he finally came to us and was like, all right, you guys want to like actually do this biotech thing and understand what's going on or like what? And we were, we were like, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, the reason that all these, this talent is migrating there is because all the most interesting technical problems exist basically at the intersection of you know, genomics and cellular engineering. And, with, there was, and he kind of told us this, this the, the, the framework that now we have today, which was that there was a set of technologies which all ended up converging, really with the last one being CRISPR. So you had sequencing technology, which is, you know, Illumina is famously known for. Um, you had microfluidics, so the ability to actually, um, you know, move individual cells around. Um, you need a cloud compute, right? So you have the ability to, and, and some biospecific tools, right? So you have the ability to deal with all of this incredible amount of data um, and all the costs on all those things are going down. But you didn't yet have the ability to, in a, in a way similar to, to software, actually create edits and, and there was no abstraction layer in that so they were using really like clunky ways to actually make the edits so everyone knew what edits they wanted to explore but they didn't yet have a way to do it easily CRISPR, you know and then now subsequent technologies are even better really changed that and that happened um you know only a few years ago and so there was this real wave happening um because talent was migrating towards the most interesting problems so we started leaning really heavily on that um, and so, you know, now what we call bioIT, which is really, you know, it's biotech, but a lot of it is actually tools, services, manufacturing, like resilience, um, some therapeutics, but, but a lot less than maybe a traditional biotech firm. Um, that's become a huge, big kind of second pillar of what we do. Um, and so the smart enterprise has changed a lot. Application layer software is, is much more competitive now. So that world really has shifted now down the stack to you know, software infrastructure and also shifted to businesses that have more um, hardware involved. So like in defense, a software only company is really hard to build right now because Palantir and other systems kind of have, have really dominated, but companies like Anduril and Epiris and Ceramic, which is right here, our newest one we've, we've built, um, uh, are building systems. So hardware plus software plus, in many cases, you know, AI or, or some sort of um, machine learning. Um, and, and so the, the composition of the companies has shifted. But I think the, the theme, which is like the role of computation in the sort of non-consumer world, has always been the place that we've been focused. I love it. Now, there's probably a lot of people that are right now listening, you know, that, uh, that will probably would love to reach out and say hi. 
So what is the best way for them to do so? And send me an email at drew at apc.com. It's probably the easiest way. Amazing. Well, hey, easy enough, Drew. Thank you so, so much, Drew, for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.